Well, Bob, that's a hard act to follow. Good thing I bring the word of the Lord as I, as I forget my Bible here. You have me speechless. Well, Cornerstone, we are back. Um, let me just stop and say, you know, after every testimony, are we not humbled to see the greatness of God's grace and what an amazing God he is? And we look for miracles and we look for signs and wonders, but as Bob pointed out, is there any greater miracle or sign and wonder than a life of a sinner that's transformed by his grace? And it's just cause for us to stop and rejoice over that. So, um, praise the Lord for that. We are back in 1 Peter after taking a break last week for um, communion. And uh, we are returning to our sermon series entitled um, Standing Firm in the True Grace of God. And our sermon titled for this morning is Children of the Spirit. And our focus this morning is going to be on the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation and in our election. And so I'll ask if you would, if you'd turn with me to 1 Peter. And before we read the scripture, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just thank you. We can't stop thanking you for who you are, uh, how gracious you are as we see lives transformed. Uh, Lord, as we see that you are a savior who does not come through the earth and look for the most successful and the smartest and the best, Lord, but you come among the least among us, Lord Jesus, and you abide with us and you reside with us and you love us and you have married us and you have made us your bride and you have accomplished this through the power of your spirit and you just do an amazing work in our lives, Lord, albeit it happens during times of difficulty, during times of trial, during times of confusion, and yet all of these things are part of your sovereign plan. And through all of these things, your spirit is drawing us to the cross, and it's drawing us to you, and it's transforming us and making us into the likeness of your image so that we might be uh, testimonies to your glorious grace, that the world may come and see what a gracious God you are and what a glorious God you are. And so we just come as a people this morning and thank you for that. Praise you for that. Praise you for the work and lives such as Bob and other lives and all the testimonies that we've heard and for the people who are here. And Lord, as a people, we confess how often do we fall short of your glory? How often do we doubt when times are difficult and hard that you are a good and gracious God? Lord, how many times do we doubt your wisdom? in the things that you ordain and that you place in our path, Lord. Uh, how many times do we get discouraged and despair and feel that we've been abandoned, Lord, when things are very difficult? And yet the truth of your word is that your spirit never leaves us and that you are always present and that you are interceding on our behalf here in our hearts and in heaven, Lord Jesus, you intercede in our behalf as well. And if you are for us, who can be against us, Lord? We know that neither height nor depths Neither demons nor anything can separate us from the love of God because of the blood that was shed on the cross. And for this, we just thank you so much. So as we come to your word today, and as we come to hear the glories of your grace as given to us by your spirit, Lord, would you open our hearts, Lord, and may we hear your word, and may we hear it anew, and may your word come in and just transform our lives, our marriages, our homes, our workplace, our church, and the world around us, so that all may see and all may praise the glories of your grace. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we've been walking through Peter's discussion of the election of the saints in 1 Peter. And today we're going to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 2. And what we're going to do as we go through the scripture is I'm going to actually read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to read each section uh, in Peter, 1 Peter, that addresses the work of the Spirit in our lives. And so I'll be jumping down to 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, and then 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. So I'll start with 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, 
May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And now 1 Peter 1.10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And now turn to 1 Peter 4.12, if you will. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for this word. As I've read through First Peter and as I was preparing for these sermons, there was a news article in the New York Times around two weeks ago that brought my attention to the reality of First Peter in this day and age. And it was an article about a Christian teenage girl in Pakistan who was imprisoned and incarcerated under the blasphemy laws. She was uh, probably between the age of 11 or 16. She belonged to a Christian community who worked as sweepers in Pakistan. Uh, what's not in common in the subcontinent of India is that uh, the jobs that many of the Christians have are the lowest of the low jobs. They are the jobs that nobody else wants. And within this community of sweepers, where they would sweep the street, somehow a book, which was a children's book um, about Islam and the Quran, ended up allegedly in her hands and it was burned. Nobody's sure how that book got in her hands. Some suggest that the possibility was that she may have picked it up off the streets. Some of her neighbors have claimed that this is a young girl with Down syndrome. But the outcome of that situation was that the nephew of her landlord went and reported to the local Muslim cleric that she was in possession of this book. And the local cleric went to the people in their community and said, you are not taking the honor of Allah properly. And this is a degraded society that is not honoring the laws of blasphemy. And he whipped that community up into such a furor that they had to incarcerate this girl in order to protect her. And the outcome of that was that the neighbors who were Christian also in that community had to move and leave for fear of retribution because there has been an increasing rise of assault on religious minorities in Islamic countries and in Pakistan. And there was a clamor and there was a furor outside the courtroom and it ended up going to the highest court in Pakistan. And at the end of the day, the court ruled that the case should be thrown out and that there was no merit to the case. There was a huge amount of pressure from uh, human rights activists around the world with this case. And praise God for that fact. But the outcome and the ordeal was not over for that family because that family went into hiding. And many of their neighbors went into hiding because they believed if they came back, the, the tension and the anger and the strife and the fury that had been whipped up by the clerics in the Muslim community was at such a high level that they feared for their very lives. And as a result, they lost everything. Now, when we hear stories like that, it is a little bit of a far cry from our lives here in America. 
And yet in many ways, the community who Peter was writing to in Rome and in the Roman provinces was very, very similar to this community of sweepers as far as the challenges, the persecution, the scrutiny, and walking on pins and needles that anything that they might do by their neighbors, by their co-workers, could be a cause for basically a bonfire to be lit in which they would be persecuted, burned, and lose everything that they have. And in fact, many of them did lose much of what they had. And that story and, and the conditions in which Peter was writing to highlight the fact, even though our lives are, let's say, much softer, and when you think of those things, it makes our issues and our crises seem small in comparison. But some of the things that they highlight during that time when people are forced to flee their homes for their love for Christ, it highlights the challenges to our faith that come with those times of trials and persecution and duress. And during those times, as a family is forced to leave and unsure whether they can ever return home, some of the things that they are confronted with, of course, is fear. What's going to happen? Concern about the future. Where do we go from here? What are we going to do? How are we going to provide for our family? Will we ever see our friends or our relatives again? Uncertainty, insecurity, and of course, coming to the top of that list is loneliness and isolation, things that we take for granted, time being together with other people who we love, all of a sudden cut off. And as communities like this are stripped, really, of everything that provides security on a human level, people who are in this situation, whether it's from issues like an illness, cancer, being laid off on the job, going through church difficulties or trials, those circumstances and those trials become a challenge to our faith. And we know that Satan is a predator who comes in and works on our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. And it's times like that where we begin to start to question our faith. We begin to question, what story are we living in? How did a love for God, how, to, how did a commitment to serve Him end up in this horrific situation where I am suffering? And then the questions start to come, does God really care? Does God love me? And perhaps in the counseling room, one of the most prominent questions that comes up is, has God abandoned me? Has he given up on me? Because by all accounts, I seem to be so alone and lonely in this situation. And how often have we seen that in situations where there have been uh, domestic disputes, where wives have been abused, um, those are very much the questions that start to pop up and come to the top. And as we look at that, we see many of the ways that Satan manipulates our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses at those times. And as Peter is writing to this community, he's anticipating many of such questions. And one of the things that he looks out for for them is this issue that by the time we walk on that path alone and by ourselves with so much fear and uncertainty, with all the securities of the world stripped away from us, there comes a time where we become very vulnerable to giving in to those thoughts, those dark thoughts. And where it ends up is on a path of discouragement and ultimately of despair, a coming to a point where we give up hope we give up hope in ourselves, we give up hope in our resources, but perhaps scariest of all, we're in a situation where we're tempted to give up on God. And so you may ask as we look at that, so then why is Peter talking about our election? Why is he spending all this time giving us the details of some theological doctrine about predestination, about our salvation? And I would propose to you that what Peter is doing for these people is he's tearing the veil of heaven away. And he's saying, don't look at this world from the story of your circumstances and your suffering and how the world views you as the lowest of the low, of people of low esteem, of people who are vulnerable, of people who have the shortest end of the stick. Look at this from the eyes of heaven and from the eyes of grace and from the eyes of God. And as he tells them about their election, what he's unfolding for them is the magnitude of God's grace in their life, that they are who they are and they are where they're at, including their suffering and including their circumstances, by virtue of God's perfect plan for them, that God has a perfect story, and that story focuses on the cross 
and it all comes together with God's beloved Son who he crucified on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. But that's not the entire story. The fullness of that story is that God crucified his son for a reason. It's so that he could sanctify and purify and save and redeem from our sins a bride that would be spotless for his son. So that there would be a chosen people, elect, pure, beautiful, filled with the grace of God, so that one day he would be glorified when all the world looks at that bride and says, indeed, this was not a good person, this was not necessarily a smart person, this was not necessarily a successful person, perhaps this was the lowest of the low. But this is a beautiful person that is like Christ. Why? Not because of anything that they've done, but because of everything that God has done. And so in that verse 2, that Peter talks to them about their election. He says, elect aliens of the diaspora, what? According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, that God had this perfect plan. And then the next aspect that he brings in, he tells us how God's plan was fulfilled by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What I want to do this morning is I want to walk through exactly what that means. Who the Spirit is that sanctifies us. What is the work that He does to sanctify us. And what do lives look like that are sanctified. Because I would put forth to you that perhaps of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, perhaps the most misunderstood and abused member of the Trinity is none other than the Holy Spirit. And yet when we look at Peter, Peter extensively talks about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has a significant role. And when we understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, I think you will find that we will have great hope because it's a reminder that God has not left us alone in the face of our trials. Though we may have a pastor who has left, though we may not know who our leaders are, we have something much greater. We have the Spirit of God. And he finishes the work that he begins in our lives. And the end of that work is that we might be like Christ and we might be a testimony to his grace. Well, where does Peter start as he asks us to consider basically the work of the Spirit in our lives? He talks about the Spirit basically several ways using several, several descriptors of the Holy Spirit. And as we look at them and as we've read through them, what we're going to discover is that the Spirit that Peter presents is markedly different than the Spirit that we're used to in the Christian church. I'll give you two extremes, but so often in our lives we go from one extreme where the Spirit is viewed as some sort of power source, that the Spirit is what empowers us for service and ministry. The Spirit is what makes us excellent Christians. And the idea a little bit is like we're hybrid cars and the Holy Spirit is that place that we need to go to plug in. And when we're plugged in and we have the juice, we go really well. We serve really well. We love really well. You know, we lead, we submit, we do all these things really well. And then as we sort of wear out and the juice, the Holy Spirit juice gets a little bit low, we're not functioning well, we're not feeling well, we're not particularly confident. And so we got to go back to our, our battery pack and plug in basically to get juiced up again so we can go for another round. And that's maybe one extreme. One of the other aspects that we look at as far as the Spirit goes is the Spirit is the idea, the Spirit is this, is this some sort of sacred genie. When we get into a crisis or we get into a problem or we need help, we've got to rub that, that MacArthur study Bible. And maybe if we rub it hard enough, the genie's going to come out and he's going to basically answer our crisis, give us an idea. Should I marry this woman? Should I not marry this woman? Should I apply for this job? What career should I go to? It's sort of a, a, a DVR Holy Spirit who's on demand. And then on the other extreme, so often the Spirit is not mentioned at all. We're sufficient with our systematic theology textbooks. We're, we're sufficient in our Reformed theology. We've got it all planned and we've got it all worked out and we know every doctrine that's in the Westminster Catechism of Faith. And as a result, since we know it all, we really don't need the Spirit. 
How does Peter describe the Spirit? He gives the Spirit several descriptive names. When we look in verse 111, he informs us that the Spirit is actually the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. We don't often think of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. But he points out to us that the Spirit is the Spirit that was with Christ from the very beginning of his ministry to the very end of his ministry. And the Spirit is the Spirit that Christ has sent to his children to fill them and indwell them. And in verse 111 through 12 and 13, he points out that it is the Spirit of Christ who has written our scriptures. That the prophets who wrote the scriptures in the Old Testament were inspired and directed and filled by the Spirit of Christ. And that there was a purpose to those scriptures. Those scriptures pointed not just to the glory of Christ, but to the suffering of Christ as well. And that they were serving us and laying a foundation for us so that we might be the children of God. He also refers to the Spirit as the Holy Spirit and the Spirit that is sent from a heaven, making distinction from the spirits that are from below, the spirits of the world. And then in verse 4, in, excuse me, chapter 4, 14, he describes the Spirit as the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God. And perhaps one of the most encouraging things for us, it's the Spirit who, while we are suffering for the name of Christ, rests upon us, that indwells us, that is part of us for those of us who are truly children of God. It's a very different portrayal of the Spirit than so often I was raised with or I was exposed to. And as we pull all these together, what Peter has done for us, if we're willing to look at how and the context of how he's portraying the Spirit, is he's given us the story of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And what he's indicated to us and what is initially implied but increasingly is revealed throughout the Old Testament and comes to the fullness in Christ is first that the Spirit is not just power, but the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is not just a power, the Spirit is a person with a personality. And we see this in Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about the Holy Spirit being grieved, that it is a personality, that he has a personality, that he can be burdened and grieved by our sins. And Paul makes a similar reference to this. We see that the Spirit also is unified with both God the Father and Christ, that they are, though they are distinct, that they are one, and that as the Spirit of glory, the Holy Spirit shares all the attributes of God, not just the attributes of signs and wonders and healing and the sort of Vegas show act of great displays, but all the attributes of God, the infinite worth, the preeminence of God. This is in the Spirit of God. And we might go further, and we'll have to talk about this a little bit later, that the Spirit, if He possesses those things, and He dwells in us, and He abides with us, then friends, whether we have leaders in place, or whether we have a pastor, or whether we've got a plan that's got it all worked out, the glory of God abides and rests on those who are His. And this is the bond that unites us with Christ, and this is the bond that unites us with one another. The Spirit is one with the Father. The Spirit is one with Christ. And yet, as Peter points out, as he gives us this story and this history, the Spirit also has a discrete function and a unique place in the Trinity. And verse 2 gives us the indication of that role. When he says that God, that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, and then he says what? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And so we see that God the Father ordains and God the Father decrees and God the Father has a perfect plan of which the cross perhaps is the culmination or the focus of his perfection for the display of his grace. But how does that plan become a reality? And Peter tells us that the perfection of our salvation, the perfection of our election, the perfection of we as a people being chosen, being called out of the world, being set apart to be Christ's spotless and perfect bride is accomplished by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 
that the Spirit is the one who comes and takes all the graces of God that God has planned, all the grace that Christ has accomplished on your behalf and mine. And it's the Spirit who comes and makes that a reality in your life and mine. And so perhaps if I can use a small illustration that falls short, we think of God, the Father, as the perfect architect with the perfect blueprint. But the Spirit comes in perfect love and submission to his will as the master builder and the master craftsman who comes and takes those plans and makes those plans a reality and builds the church and the bride of Christ for the glory of God. And so as we see that picture, you see that the spirit, his role is that of an executive. Or if we might say, we, we, make this term, we use this term, an executor of a will. Han would probably know better and he can hold me accountable if I'm wrong in this as a lawyer. But the idea of an executor of a will is someone who has been legally appointed to discharge and to implement all the aspects of a, a will or testament. It's the responsibility of the executor to make sure legally that all the aspects of that will are executed rightly and perfectly in honor and keeping with the will of the person who made that will. And so we see with the Spirit, the Spirit's role is not necessarily for fireworks and basically to put these huge displays on. The role of the Spirit is to do the will of the Father. And so we see, as we're told in 1, 11, and 12, that the Spirit, one of the Spirit's first roles that we're made aware of is to reveal the grace of God and the heart of God to us by writing Scripture. That the words that we see are the words of the Spirit of Christ. And so we see that the Spirit is never separate from the Word of God. And the moment we separate Christ from His Word, the moment we separate the Spirit from His Word, the moment we separate the Father from the Word, we're in big trouble. The moment I separate my wife from her Word, guess what? Mark Chid's in big trouble, right? Because of who she is. And so in the same way, we look at the Spirit, the Father, and the Son, and many have likened them to a marriage of sorts. And an image Jonathan Edwards makes the reference of of maybe getting a small glimpse of the love within the Trinity as a model in some ways for the love that exists in a family or in a marriage. And we see that the Spirit's role out of love for the Father and love for the Son is really to do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? What Peter's telling us here is that the will of the Father is that we would be set apart for Christ. That we would be his bride. That we would be his children. And that we would be to his glory, perfect and spotless. How does the Spirit accomplish that work? He does it through the work of sanctification. It is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit that our election, our being called out, our being chosen, our perfection is fulfilled. And so we have to ask, okay, what do we mean by sanctification? Let me give it to you in a nutshell and we'll work our way back. To be sanctified means to be made holy. To be made holy is to be made like Christ. Hopefully if there's one thing you take home, that's what you take home that the chief function of the Spirit in our lives is not to make us better Christians. It's not to make us, in and of itself, better husbands or wives. It's not to have better families. It's not even, first and foremost, to be better ministers or equipped for service. So often in the church, there's been this idea that basically the leaders who minister really well are the ones who are filled with an extra portion of the Spirit. And then the rest of us are second-class citizens who are functioning at maybe 25% or 50% of the Spirit. And if we're not gifted with these spectacular gifts, we don't have the Spirit. But Peter's portrayal is quite different. The role and function of the Spirit primarily is to address sin in our lives and to make us holy 
because we cannot do that ourselves. And to mold us and conform us into the image of Christ for the glory of God so that the world and the heavens can see and the angels can look down at the mystery and behold this glory that sinners like you and I, minute by minute, moment by moment, are becoming more like Christ. Not because of anything we do in and of ourselves, but because of the grace of God and the work of the Spirit. And so as we look at that, I want to unpack that a little bit for you now, what that sanctification involves and then what it looks like in our lives. The first thing that we have to consider as we say that the role of the Spirit in our lives is to sanctify us and make us holy, to make us like Christ, is what does it mean to be holy? What is holiness? Usually we think of holiness as those people who are really good, maybe like a nun, maybe like a priest, maybe like John MacArthur. Okay, what, what does it mean to be holy? As we look at Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the idea of holiness is the idea of being totally devoted to the glory of God, being totally devoted to the glory of God. And in order for us to be totally devoted to the glory of God, we must be completely separate from sin. Why? Because God is holy. And when we look at the context of that idea of God is holy and we bring back the idea of Isaiah coming before God, and as the angels say, holy, 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 and Isaiah falls flat in his face and he says, woe is me, I am undone. The vision that is given to us and that Isaiah presents to us is the is the idea that God is something far separate from anything that exists on this fallen and sinful earth. That what we see when we catch a glimpse of God's holiness is the idea of a divine perfection. A divine perfection. And part of that divine perfection is the idea of moral purity. That every attribute and every aspect of God is right and is good. And there's another aspect that's brought with that idea of divine perfection and divine purity. It's the idea of divine order. That in God and with God, everything finds its perfect place. There is nothing with God that is out of order. There is nothing in the plans of God that is out of order. Everything is in balance. Everything has its perfect place. Why? Because this is who God is. And because of that, a holy God cannot tolerate sin. Because what exactly is sin? There are many ways to look at that. A transgression of the law, a missing of the mark. But ultimately when we look at it, it's a failure to believe God is who he is. And a rebellion against the heart and spirit and character of God. That we believe that we're the perfect ones that our order is best, that our way is right, that our rules are good. It is a choosing of our glory over God's. It is a stealing of his glory for ourselves. Holiness is the divine perfection of God, the divine order, the moral purity. And as it's translated into the lives of the saints and in the things that are around God, it pertains to those things that have been separated from sin and have been pushed and placed in a position to be a possession of God for his glory and for his sake that is devoted entirely to the glory of God. It is the idea of the perfect bride completely devoted to her groom who has severed all ties with anything that would detract from that relationship or stain that relationship. This is the idea and this is the vision of holiness and this is the Spirit's function in our lives. The illustration that's given in the Old Testament of the idea of sanctification, of making something holy, is the notion of vessels that were created for the use of worship with God in the tabernacle or the temple. And the process of sanctification, of making holy, involved consecration and sanctification, setting apart and purifying The idea was that these vessels were made specifically according to the word of the Lord, according to his description, according to his plan for his glory. 
But as these vessels are used and as humans come because we're sinful and we touch them and they get used repeatedly, what's the problem? They become contaminated and they become unclean. And then the question is, what do we do? Do we discard these vessels? Do we just get rid of them and start over again? And the provision of sanctification, of consecration and purification is the idea that they must be purified in some way from their uncleanness, the lack of holiness, so that they can be used again before the Lord. And in the Old Testament and in Leviticus, the Lord gives us a picture, model, of what that's like. And that involves cleansing with purified water, but also cleansing with blood. Why is that? The author of Hebrews tells us that without blood, and the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. That the only way that our sin can be dealt with is if the blood of the perfect lamb is shed and is used to purify that. Many people would say, well, that sounds very tribal and very remote, and this pagan ritual, not really pagan, but similar rituals of sacrifice, how, you know, how primitive this is, but... For me, what helps me think about this, and of course, I'll always take you to medical illustrations because, you know, what other illustrations do I have? I probably rival Bob here. His sports illustrations, mine are all medical. But I remember being in an operating room one time with a surgeon, and the surgeon got very upset, and he got upset because the blade that he was using was not sharp, and he slammed it down, and he called out to the nurse, and he said, get me another blade and get rid of this blade. He said... I can't work with this blade, and I can't work with equipment like this. And what's critical in an operation is that you have instruments that are pure and not contaminated, and that are completely sterile, but that you also have precision instruments that are sharp and can do exactly the job that they've been designed to do. And at the point that they can no longer do that, they should be discarded. And the story of our election is this, that God created each and every one of us by the Spirit of God to glorify Him. Genesis 1 tells us that we were made in the image of God, in His likeness. Why? To bear, to be image representatives, to bear His image, to demonstrate His glory in the world so that the entire creation could look and the angels could look and say, this is the grace of God. And what did we do? We contaminated that blade. We contaminated that vessel by our sin, by our belief that we should be God, that we should know good and evil, and things should work our way instead of God's way. And that sin severed us from the holiness of God. And that sin made us unholy. And what did God do? Did he discard the blade? Our loving and gracious God had a perfect plan. A plan that he had before the foundation of the earth. That he would send his own son. And it would be the shedding of his blood that would come. And that would wash away our sins because the blood of animals could not do so. And that he would purify us and that he would redeem us. And he would sharpen that blade and he would cleanse that blade. So that one day we could be vessels that are redeemed and purified once more and we could give glory to God. That is the loving God that we have. That is the gracious God that we have. And so Peter is telling us that it is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit who comes and cleanses us and purifies us and renews us in the image of God. That is how God is accomplishing his salvation and his election in our lives. How does the Spirit do that? Let me say this very simple and try and work back. I've had to do this because maybe some of this, a lot of this exceeds my understanding. But ultimately the Spirit does this by bringing us to the foot of the cross. The Spirit does this by bringing the entirety of our lives to the foot of the cross because that is the place where we, see, we receive forgiveness. That is the place of repentance. That is the place of transformation. That is the place where God's grace is poured into us. And there is no other place 
where that happens. And we would like to believe as Christians that that would happen at a better church. We would like to believe maybe as Christians that would happen with better leaders. We would like to believe that maybe on a given day that would happen with better children or better spouses. We would like to believe that maybe that would happen with a better job. But what Peter is coming and telling these suffering Christians is is that the place of redemption and sanctification and purification and the place of perfection is at the foot of the cross and it's the Spirit who is bringing us there. And I would propose to you on a human level the Spirit does that in two ways. First, He does it by uniting our lives with Christ. He does it by uniting our lives in Christ. Everybody would like to look at all the different aspects of our sanctification our repentance, our hearing the word of the Lord, our conviction of sin, our regeneration. And we may try and get it all ordered. But the truth of it is the entirety of it is the Spirit coming to us and pouring into us a life that is not our own because our life is worthless. Our life is unholy. Our life is impure. Our life is imperfect. And if we were to trust our marriages, our homes our church, any aspect to our lives, we of all people are in the biggest trouble. And God is much better than that. And God is coming and saying, you need a heart transplant. You need a life transplant. And the life that you need is the perfect life of the son. The son who came and lived the life that you could never live. The son who obeyed in the way that you could never obey. The son who suffered and was reviled and rejected and yet did not revile in return. The son who forgave perfectly. The son who went to the cross and was crucified and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the son who was raised on the third day. The son who is perfectly pleasing to the Father. That's the life that you need, not your own life. And so what the Spirit does is He comes and sanctifies us and unites our life with Christ and pours into our life His life, the life of Christ. But to do that, He must destroy our old life. The life of sin, the life of pride, the life of self-righteousness, the life of choosing and saying wisdom in my own mind and in my own power. I'll use another medical illustration. I'll wear them out this morning. But when we think of people who are dying or suffering from leukemia, many of them are saved by a bone marrow transplant. And in that bone marrow transplant, we need to find first someone who has a donor who will give them a bone marrow that will produce good blood cells and will give them new life and remove those old blood cells that all they are doing is producing cancerous cells. So we need a donor, but we also have a problem. We've got to get rid of all those bad cells. And in the bone marrow transplant procedure, we need to give chemotherapy and radiation. We need to medically come in and destroy that sick person's bone marrow and wipe it out completely so that there are no cancerous cells left, if possible. Because what's the point of putting a new healthy donor in where there's still the old cancerous cells that are going to come back and replace. So we've got to wipe that out and we've got to put in the new and we give life for hope that that person can have a new life not marred by cancerous cells that are destroying every aspect of their life. And what scripture tells us and what Peter points out is that God does this with the spirit to us in his sanctification. That the process is not just the new life but it's the address of sin. And in God's goodness and his grace, he doesn't do a shock to the system, but he does that progressively. And that there is a time frame for that. And that we start now, but it will be complete when we see Christ face to face, and then we will be like him. And in many ways, that's a mercy to us. Because if God was to address and destroy the entirety of our sin in one shot, who would stand and who would be here? In one sense, he has addressed it all by crucifying it and putting it on the cross so that it is wiped out so that when he looks at us, he only sees Christ's life and not ours. But then as he shapes us and molds us and conforms us to the image of the Son, he does it progressively. He does it gently and he does it kindly. But what's required for that? 
Sometimes chemotherapy is required. Sometimes being in the furnace to be sterilized is required. Sometimes sharpening is required. And we see that the two aspects of the spirit sanctification is not only coming in and addressing our hearts, but it's also molding every aspect of our life according to God's perfect plan so that our sin is challenged, so that we're pruned, so that our hearts are fertile ground, so that we are refined. And many times that refining requires discipline. Many times it requires a level of judgment. Many times it requires us to be way outside of our comfort zone so that we're looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, would you come in rather than me doing it in the old way? And so we see as the Spirit comes in and he focuses on our sin, he brings the word of God to bear. Jesus tells us that the Spirit and the Comforter will come when he goes to what? In John 16, to convict the world of sin. How often do we forget that? We refer to the Spirit as the Comforter. We refer to the Spirit as the one who empowers us. But are we willing to embrace the Spirit who comes to convict the world of sin? We don't necessarily want to be judged. But do we see it as an act of kindness and grace that the Lord is coming to us and saying, I love you and I'm purifying you and I'm turning you into my bride. And part of that process is painful Part of that process is difficult, but ultimately this process is sweet. And I'm doing it by my spirit to bring my word into your life, to convict you of your sin, to bring repentance into your life, to work this and to bring you to the foot of the cross and to transform you and to put off the old and to put off the new, all of which is the spirit's work in our lives. Perhaps the hardest part of that is the issue that as we're transformed and we become like Christ on the inside, our lives begin to reflect Christ on the outside. And when we look at the Apostle Paul, and we look and we talk and we hear him say about knowing the sufferings of Christ so that he might know the resurrection of Christ, we see that Paul's life as he was transformed and filled with the Spirit started to mirror the Savior's life, that on this earth, even as Paul was being made more holy, He was being more rejected by the world. He was being more hated by the world. He was receiving more adversity. He was receiving more conflict. Why is that? Because the world hates Christ. Because the flesh hates Christ. Because sin is opposed to the work of the Spirit. And as we look at the work of the Spirit from Genesis through Revelation, that the work of the Spirit, whether it's the writing of Scripture whether it's filling the lives of the saints, whether it's sanctifying our lives and addressing sin in our lives, the Spirit has always been opposed by the fallen flesh of man that is embracing the sin of this world and that there is a war that is going on, not only in the world, but in our hearts, opposed step by step, minute by minute, moment by moment. The Lord has brought us, as he sanctified us, into a war. And that war begins in our hearts. And that war is who will reign supreme. Will it be our Lord and Savior? Will it be Christ? Will it be the Spirit who is shepherding us in that direction? Or will it be the old man and will it be the flesh and will it be the things of the world? So what does the Spirit's work in our life look like on a day-to-day basis? The Spirit's work in our life is a work of holiness, that ultimately it resembles who the Spirit is, that the Spirit is holy. So often we have this idea that when the Spirit comes into our life that we we should become like a Christian member of the Avengers. Each one of us has a special gift to become a super-Christian. But when we think about it, if the Spirit is holy and He's present in our lives and He's sanctifying us and He's purifying us of sin and He's coming and He's convicting us of different aspects and He's bringing us to the cross, what should our life look like? It should look like the Spirit. What should our leadership meetings look like? It should look like the Spirit. What should our marriages look like? It should look like the Spirit. It should have the fragrance of holiness 
And yet we have to say on the flip side of that, as our lives are conformed to the life of Christ, and we walk on this earth as aliens and foreigners, and we begin to be identified with him rather than this world, we realize that our lives are also going to be filled with conflict. And that conflict begins in our hearts. That there is a war going on in our hearts. There is a war that will go on in our marriages. There will be a war that will go on in our leadership. There will be a war that will go on in our community. The flesh hates the spirit. And the flesh wants nothing to do with the spirit. And that's why so much when you read the epistles of Paul and you also see Peter, they talk about this war that's going on, to be vigilant, to be sober, to be mindful that though our sins have been nailed to the cross and though we are no longer under the dominion of Satan and though we have had Christ's bone marrow transplant where Christ dwells within us and we are his and we are no longer on the domination of sin, there are still portions of our lives and portions of our identity that are warring and waging and trying to gain control. And we're encouraged to put off the old and to put on the new. And we're encouraged to walk in the spirit. We're encouraged to pursue Christ, but it's not an idle encouragement. It is an encouragement that has hope. Because ultimately we are promised, as Paul has said in Philippians, that he who has begun the good work in us will finish it. Will we be patient and wait for the Lord to finish the work that he's begun in our lives? Here's the million-dollar question. Will we be patient with one another to wait for the Lord to finish that work in one another's life? The idea that the Spirit is dwelling in us and is sanctifying us is demonstrating that the lives that we live are his life, not ours. And the repentance that is brought in our lives is his repentance, not ours. And the sanctification and being made holy in the address of sin is his, not ours. And so it's not like someone is sinning against me that I can say, I told you so, here's the word of God, change and be different and expect them tonight to be a totally different person. Because when I do that, my expectation is that it's the spirit of Mark that's transforming their lives, not the spirit of God. This is his life, this is his schedule, this is his way, not ours. Where does that leave us? What are we supposed to do? Do we just sit back and say, let go and let, and, and let God do all this work if it's all the Spirit, if it's all his work? The thing that Peter raises, the thing that Paul raises repeatedly is that the role of the believer is to be submitted to the Spirit that we are to walk with the Spirit, that we are to be led by the Spirit and no longer by the flesh, that we are to follow His cues and walk after Him. I liken the illustration once again to yet another medical illustration. So often I had the privilege of taking care of young children who had cuts or bruises and they would come in with lacerations and their parents would bring them in to me. And I would have to basically sew them up whatever that cut and that laceration was. And a critical part of doing that was basically to sterilize the wound and to clean the wound so it would not become contaminated or have infection. And in order to do that in a way that was painless to the child, I would many times have to give an injection in the beginning of something that would freeze that wound so that the child, as I progressed, would not feel the full weight of that process of sewing up and cleaning that wound and sewing up that child. And of course, invariably, with the child in the room, with the total stranger, and as you come at them with anything, they're struggling and they're fighting. And mothers would have to plead with their children, you know, listen, Dr. Chin is just trying to help you. Dr. Chin is just trying to help you. And they would have to wrap them and hold them so that we could get through that procedure. And how often are we like that with the Spirit of God? Where we're fighting and resisting and we're pushing back because we're afraid of what's going to be involved for our hearts and our sin to be clean. For us to deal with the ugliness of our sin. For us to truly repent for us to have that removed. And all the Lord is trying to say is, let me take that burden from you. Let me bear that sin. Let me be the one who's going to clean it. And stop trying to do it on your own. And so our role as believers in this situation is to be submitted to the Spirit and to let Him do the work and let Him have His way with us. And Scripture tells us specifically how we're to do that. 
It's by being in the word and it's by being in prayer. Ephesians tells us what it's like to be filled with the spirit as does Colossians. It's interesting that when they taught, when Paul talks about it, he's not talking about miracles or gifts or speaking in tongues. He's talking about being filled with the word of God, of singing hymns and singing songs and speaking the truth and love to one another and having a life that is just overflowing with the word of God. Why? Because that word of God is the word of the spirit. The second aspect that Paul talks about so often and Peter brings up as well is for us to be in prayer. Why? Because prayer is a humble submission to the will of God. And as we are in prayer, a Christ-centered prayer, we are submitting to the Spirit and we're saying, Spirit of God, come and do it your way, not my way. Turn with me if you would, and I will close shortly for you, to Ephesians 5. Excuse me, Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God. Paul explains to the Ephesians at the end that they're to put on the whole armor of God. And if we go to verse 16, he says, In addition, Ephesians 6, 16, To all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then what does he say? With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The sword of the Spirit is the word. And Paul calls us in our spiritual warfare, both in our hearts and in our lives, to be in prayer in the Spirit. How do we submit? How do we yield? How do we let the Lord do that perfect work? Through the Word and through prayer. And I think we have to ask ourselves, when we're faced with trials and difficulties and conflict, am I here because of the Word and prayer, or am I here because of myself? It's important for us to make that distinction. Where does that leave us as children of the Spirit? Cornerstone, you, me, the leaders of the church. What is the hope that is here for suffering saints? The hope here, number one, is that we are never alone. That the Spirit dwells in us and that Christ is with us. And though we be abandoned by all men, The Lord has not abandoned us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why? Because of the cross. That's something that we have to hang on to when Satan comes with his fiery darts and causes us to be discouraged and despair and believe that things are hopeless. We believe that things are hopeless because the things that we relied on for our security in the past have been stripped away from us. But perhaps the Lord in his grace has stripped those things away from us so that we could actually see with eyes of grace that it is the spirit that's at work within us. We must remember too that though we are never alone, we are always in the midst of a battle. And that battle from the outside is with Satan and the rulers of this world, but there's a battle going in our hearts between the flesh and the spirit, which will only be done when we see Christ. Where does that leave us going forward? We of all people have the most hope because this world will always be filled with suffering. This world will always be filled with conflict. This world will always be filled with despair because we live in a sinful fallen world. But we have the spirit of God. We have the spirit above. We have Christ. And the work that he's begun in our hearts He promises that he will finish one day. And that is what gives us security and that is what gives us hope. That all of this that we're dealing with is part of God's perfect plan to mold us into the image of Christ so that one day we will be presented to him as that perfect bride spotless 
to his glory. And the world, every person in this world, every coworker, every difficult person you've ever contended with, every person who is persecuted or accused, the angels above, the demons below, will stop and bow and stop their mouths in wonder and say, what a glorious God of grace. He does, this, does not discard sinful, worthless items, but he renews and redeems and sanctifies by his spirit. And what the spirit sanctifies, no man can pull away from the palm of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you do not give up on us. We thank you for your spirit that you've given to us to sanctify us and purify us. Oh Lord, may we be a people who are submitted to your spirit in word and in prayer. May our hearts be wide open and may we allow you to come in and cleanse our lives of the sin that we bear and that we carry with us. And may we allow you to take us to the cross and may we say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith for the one who lived and loved and died for me. May this be our testimony today and every day. In your name we pray, amen.